You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again on the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Hillary Davidson back on the show with me. She was on uh, last year to talk about her her latest book at the time. It was The Shadows of New York, book two, and it was called Don't Look Down. Well, today she has a brand new book, and it's already out everywhere uh, for you to go grab a copy of. It's called Her Last Breath. And I'll tell you what, I, I kind of felt like I was taking my last breath a couple times when I was reading this, Hillary. Um, what a fantastic read. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this sounds terrible, <laughs> but it's so flattering when someone says that. And yet at the same time, I feel like I've kind of, you know, put you through suspense and terror. So, but thank you. <laughs> but you kind of love it at the same time, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's it's my job, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of the intended purpose. <laughs> so, Hillary, um, we, we talked last year. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was uh, early summer, if I remember right. <sighs> Um, but, uh, you know, that a weird thing happened last year. I don't know if you, if you were paying attention, but there was kind of a global pandemic and, you know, everybody's world was turned upside down. You know, what, when you started talking about the time, I was like, I can't even think about anything except that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what has your last year been like? You know, uh, writers are a unique, uh, group of people in that, uh, most of the time we, we spend a lot of time locked away in our writing office and and you know it we don't necessarily have you know busy outside schedules all the time but it's it's kind of been weird for everybody what's it been like for you yeah absolutely so that's funny you say that about writers because normally i am working in a corner of my living room basically that's my little setup i have a screen around my desk and 95 percent of a normal year is me working alone with my imaginary friends and that didn't change in the pandemic my job in that way um, didn't change, though the 5% that makes up the incredibly fun portion where I get to go on book tour, uh, see people at conferences, all the kind of rewarding stuff, that all got canceled. And actually, my last book came out uh, just as the pandemic was hitting. And so my whole tour got canceled, which, you know, very small complaint mm. next to the things that people went through. But it was a really, um, you know, it, it's been a tough time. I mean, COVID affected my family personally. One of my brothers ended up in hospital um, and he's fine now, but, um, you know, he has asthma. And so he had a terrible reaction to getting sick. And, you know, that kind of like writer's isolation that you sort of normally go through when you're working on a book, um, that was that was very much like what the year um was like. And I think her last breath maybe reflects that a little bit. I was sort of halfway through writing the book when the pandemic hit. And so I had this kind of quandary about, 
do I actually try to incorporate some of this, some of the changes in the world in the book? And I ended up feeling like this is so big, I, I couldn't not mention it. So the book is set a little bit post pandemic, but you know, everybody has gone through this uh, kind of uh, difficult, painful um, experience of the pandemic in book. You know, Hillary, you, you said, and, and rightfully so that, um, you know, your book tour and, and plans like that being canceled um, kind of pales in comparison to what some other people have had to go through. Um, but but what you went through was was very real, um, you know, that having uh, book tours canceled and, and your schedule upended, um, you know, that that's something that was very real and it absolutely happened. And and even though, yes, it doesn't you know, it, it does pale in comparison to what some other people went through. Um, that was a that was a loss, and and I think that you know we need to uh, realize that loss and 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 come to grips with that in 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 some way. It's um you know it's funny because living I live in New York and close to two hospitals, and so last spring it was just. I mean, it was sirens like twenty four seven. It was just you you never really got away from it, and you never really got away from that sort of sense of how much suffering there was. And, you know, my husband and I, we were both afraid, both, you know, working from home in our small apartment. And occasionally we would say like, oh, well, you know, let's let's try to do something fun. Let's take a walk. But you couldn't even get away from it that way, like not to be horrifically gruesome, but because we live near a hospital, um, you know, we we took a walk and we encountered the refrigerator trucks where they were having to store bodies because people mm. were dying at such a rapid rate that they could not send them to the morgue. They had nowhere else to put them. So even just, you know, sort of going about your life when you're living in a place that was sort of the epicenter of a plague, there was no way not to sort of feel that every day, really every hour of every day. You know, Hillary, we um, we talk to a lot of thriller writers, and there's something about people that are very uh, upbeat, positive people. You know, that that live in a sunshiny existence for a lot of their life, but but still write um, stories about the dark side of humanity. And there's there's something about wanting to read those sorts of books when when you don't necessarily live a life that reflects that and and you know you know there maybe there's lots of reasons it allows us to to come face to face with some of the darkness of life from the safety of our reading chair um you know the the, the psychology of why we love these kind of books maybe that's a discussion for another time um it's a great but, observation though sorry to interrupt but that is a well, great no, observation no, that, yeah well, well thank you um but when you actually do come face to face with the darkness of the world and in the the pandemic that we went through, how does that affect you as a writer? Because, you know, what, uh, from the, the little bit of, I've gotten to know you, um, you're a, you're a very positive person. Um, yet you write stories that, uh, you know, scare the bejesus out of me. Um, what is it like to come, you know, face to face with, with real actual darkness? I, I really think that the the way that I process it is actually by channeling it into um, my work. I really strongly believe that everybody has a sort of shadow side or dark side, that that's just part of being human. We all sort of have this, this um, 
darkness and it's a question of how do you process it some people sort of you know this is part of their everyday life and their feelings that they can't manage and the struggles that they have but for me it's sort of always been like writing has been my space where if something bad happened to me in my real life i would write about it and um, that has sometimes taken the form of nonfiction too. I've certainly done essays or um, articles, um, even like bad health experiences or something like that. I used to do articles um, for health magazines about them. So, you know, there's always been kind of a let me take this and share this with other people because somehow, I don't know if it, with fiction, I could say if it makes it less bad, because as you say, I'm, you know, here kind of terrorizing you with, with my work. <laughs> but um, there is something about processing all of those dark feelings, the fear, um, you know, fear was a huge part of the last year, not knowing what was going on, not knowing how to react to it. And even though it's not a one-to-one -one kind of transfer, um, just because I I'm, you know, going through something like that doesn't mean I'm going to write about, you know, a pandemic story where the pandemic is front and center. But definitely that emotion is, you know, very real. And that emotion is going to be communicated. And I think it's very freeing. I mean, all of the crime writers I know, we sort of joke about kind of like what a refuge it is to go to a conference with other crime writers, because it really are the, the most sort of um, fun um, I, I wouldn't say everybody is sunny, but helpful, kind, um, generous people. And we, you know, the sort of truism is that we worked it out on on the page. And I don't know if that's, you know, works for everything or could always be true. But I know that it is where the feelings that I don't um, want to deal with or the things that make me uncomfortable, those all go onto the page. Well, I guess working it out on the page is better than working it out on your neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> hey, don't joke. I have had, you know, terrible neighbors where sometimes it's like, what if this awful thing happened? Hey, I'm going to write that down and that'll be my catharsis. So <laughs> that has certainly happened. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, speaking of you, you mentioned that you also wrote um, nonfiction uh, in, in the past primar primarily. Um, you wrote um, some travel guides and things like that, right? That's right. For about a decade, I was a full-time freelance writer, and my specialty was travel. And I, um, in that time, I wrote 17 guidebooks for Fromer's Travel Guides, but I was also the honeymoon columnist for Martha Stewart Weddings, which is a job that everybody kind of teases me about now because I used to write these happy honeymoon pieces. And, you know, now if I'm writing about a travel destination, there'll be some murder there or something. A but, body's going to um, show up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I also did a lot of other um, journalism. I did sort of what's called service journalism, which is writing, uh, it's like news you can use. And that would be about health conditions or um, just, you know, profiles. Um, I used to do a lot of profiles, actually, of people. So there's sort of all kinds of writing that I that I got to do. That was kind of my background before I really turned to the dark side and got into writing fiction. Looking at your fiction and then looking at some of your previous nonfiction, um, do, do you view those things as as like two separate careers or do you feel like that one prepared you to do the other? Um, how do you look at your writing career and over the the varied things that you've done? 
I mean, I feel like I've always been sort of on this continuum where the job that I wanted wasn't a job that I imagined as a, a real job, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I'm from a working class background. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And so becoming a writer was not a realistic career path. And so when I went to college, my goal was to become an editor at a magazine. That was my goal. And once I got in and did that for a couple of years, I realized, well, really, what I want is to be a writer. Um, it, it wasn't a new desire. It's sort of always what I wanted. But, you know, fiction writing, oh, that'll never happen. But I can do this nonfiction writing. And so I did that for a few years. And the desire, though, to write fiction was always there. And it did take me a lot of time to sort of get the confidence to do that and to sort of um, like put myself out there and, and you know, try. I, I never imagined this would be a career, but everything I've done before this has fed into it, has been sort of, um, I don't want to say a stepping stone, but it's been kind of a path that's led me here. Um, being a travel writer was one of the most incredible educations you could have, partly because of this amazing experience of getting to see the world, but also because you learn to write in any circumstance at all. You can be on a bus in the middle of the night, you know, next to like a crying baby kind of thing, and you will still be churning out your stories because you're on deadline, you know, while you're away. So partly it, um, it prepared me just in terms of the discipline of writing and the discipline of sort of, you know, even working in imperfect circumstances. But yeah, it, it also, I think, um, just gave me a lot that I wanted to write about. And also at the time, um, travel stories had to be very positive. You know, there was one story I turned in once that mentioned um, I'd gotten, I wouldn't say mugged, but someone had tried to extort money out of me. It was actually a tour operator on a trip that I'd been on. And I mentioned it in passing in a story to kind of just warn people what they might be in for at the destination and my editor wouldn't include it. And basically the idea was like, oh no, they'd never advertise with us again if, if we say this. And so um, writing fiction also became kind of a repository for, well, there are bad things that happen. You're vulnerable when you're on the road. You know, there are all of these things that can happen. And so it, it became a little bit of like a, you know, I can't write about this in my day-to-day -day job. So I'm gonna write about it in my fiction. I love that. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process. The concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline. 12 beats and three acts. Each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board. 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000 word book, it's about two cards per chapter roughly. 
We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website. Developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates, PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Um, as a, a travel writer specifically, your job is to notice things that other people might not necessarily notice and to, to highlight things that will um, – things that are just – off the beaten path to to make people's travel and and visit exciting um do do you think that that has helped your fiction writing to uh, just being in the habit of looking for things that um that maybe people don't expect or does that help you in telling a story by highlighting things that that are different or um looking for the thing that just doesn't naturally stand out yeah, absolutely. Actually, the strangest way that it's helped me is that as a travel writer, because I was writing for some distinctly different markets, like writing for the honeymoon market, writing for sort of a business traveler um, kind of market, writing for a family market, you know, for people with young kids, um, I was sort of wearing these different hats and sort of looking at a destination through different sets of eyes for the different clients that I was writing for. And it was actually perfect grounding for a fiction writer because you're almost forced to imagine a character. So you're imagining a honeymooning couple, you know, what are they going to be interested in? What's going to appeal to them? You're imagining, you know, family with 
young kids and what's their trip going to be like and sort of what are the impediments and the pitfalls and you know how what are they going to be able to do with their young kids and you're sort of um mentally inhabiting these characters so that you can explain the landscape to them and so that was actually some of the best grounding i think i had inadvertently i mean that certainly was not by design or anything but because um i was sort of a travel generalist when you do the guidebooks anyway you sort of need to appeal to a wide audience and then i was writing for a number of different specialty magazines um, like really you know, health oriented, um, you know, everyone had their little niche. And so I would be looking at each destination through the eyes of these different characters, noticing different things. And I channel that in my fiction, um, especially in books like this, where there's more than one narrator, um, where sometimes they're seeing the same things, but it's really important what they note, because they'll be in the same place, but they won't notice the same things about it. And what they see in their setting tells you something about the character. The last time we uh, we talked, Don't Look Down was the the um, the new book, and it was The Shadows of New York, book two. And um, you have this really great character, Detective Sterling. Um, and um, fantastic book um when you Thank start you. to work on a new book like her last breath how do you decide um you know if this is going to be a book that's going to fit into a world that you've already created like the shadow series um where you know there are rules already established and places and people already in place um whereas uh, her last breath is a um is a new creation with all new characters and all how do you decide does does the story idea itself kind of speak to you? Okay, this is going. This doesn't need to fit with something I've already created. This is a a new world. How, what is that first creation point like? It's a great question because since I've done series books and standalone books, the process is often really different because when you're starting with a series the one thing that really grounds you are your recurring characters. And, you know, Sharon Sterling is like the anchor of the Shadows of New York series. And so the reader sort of knows her, trusts her. Um, it's not a situation where they're meeting a new character and wondering, is this character lying to me? Can I trust their perceptions? Like, you know these these characters. And so you you know the world they inhabit. The downside to that is I think it's a little bit harder to keep people at the edge of their seat when they um, are with characters that they know really well. Because while I know some authors um, occasionally they have, you know, made a massive change to a major series character, I don't like that myself. I feel like if you have this relationship with the reader, um, it's kind of like... Uh, there's a trust there and, and, you know, you, you don't want to break that world. So, you know, that Sharon is going to be alive at the end of the book. You're not, you know, even when I put her in jeopardy, you're not really seriously thinking that, oh, she's going to vanish from the series because she's not. Whereas when I start out writing a standalone, um, and in this case, it was really like the scenario at the beginning of her last breath, the idea of, a young woman going to her sister's funeral, a death that was supposed to be accidental, 
And while she's there, she gets a message, an electronic message that her sister set up to go out if she died, basically saying that, you know, if I die, it won't be an accident and that my husband already killed his first wife and got away with it. So that was the scenario in mind. And I just knew that it wasn't a series book. I wanted to really be able to play with sort of uh, the veracity of the narrators um, to see sort of, you know, what, I mean, whether you can trust them, sure, whether you can um, believe what they're telling you, but also putting them in danger. You don't, know if they're going to come back from that. You don't really know um, what's going to happen. There are no parameters for this world. So it was thrilling, but also more nerve wracking as a writer, because with a series book, at least I have this kind of um, like a like a base to build on. And with a standalone, anything can happen. And so it, it was really out there, like flying by the seat of my pants kind of thing, not knowing what would happen next. <laughs> While I love um, series characters and the depth that you can only get from following a character from book to book to book, and that there's definitely something to be said for that, um, there also is something to be said for turning a page in a book and not knowing if one of the main characters is going to wind up dead in a dumpster somewhere. Right, exactly. That That is just a kind of... Um, thrill that I I don't yes. really know that could ever be replicated in a series. And so it's a little intoxicating. This is um, Her Last Breath is only the second standalone book that I've ever done. It's my seventh book, but only the second standalone. And I will say that it kind of got my mind churning more in a standalone direction because I, I kind of love that risk factor and that sense of, oh man, anything could happen. Like don't so feel comfortable for a minute. Right, exactly. <laughs> So you alluded to um, kind of the the main plot point that sets up the book uh, just a moment ago. What what was that? Um, are are you the kind of person that that just gathers little plot ideas? You know, as you go through life, um, you know, what would happen if someone died and they had predicted their own murder? Um, you know, or uh, you know, maybe you're you're reading a newspaper article and say, oh, my gosh, you know, you start playing the what if game. What if this happened or that happened? Um, are, are you that sort of uh, idea creator or uh, do you like to come up with characters and then place them on the stage and see what happens to them? You know, all of the things, it's like all of the above. Uh, basically, I am absolutely a collector. I will read something and, you know, put that aside sometimes for years, but still have it sort of churning in the back of my brain, like what an idea, what an idea. But I will confess in this case, there was sort of a real life kind of seed for this from a, a very sad story. Um, but just um, a few years ago, I had several friends go through extremely ugly breakups of long-term relationships. And one of those in particular ended with some horrifying uh, physical violence that my friend suffered. And, you know, it's the sort of thing where um, I guess everyone wonders, you know, were there warning signs? Were there something you could do? But like these stories of just sort of abuse that I heard from friends later, not all of it physical, some of it emotional, um, it kind of made me start thinking of 
well, actually, uh, I should back up a little bit. At the time, remember I said I work out my dark feelings in my fiction? At the right. time, I wrote a spate of short stories with abusers that all met terrible ends. Um, I think the first one was in a book called The Night of the Flood, where I wrote a story called The Darkest Hour, where... You know, that that might have been the one. And then literally my next like three, four years, I think every short story I wrote was in one way or another dealing with abusers. And it was literally just on that theme. I was really kind of consumed, I think, by how common um, physical and emotional abuse is in relationships. And so even though this scenario is completely made up scenario, it came out of, I guess, listening to women who'd gone through that experience. Um, it came to sort of thinking about what would it be like to be trapped in a relationship that you felt was toxic and felt like you couldn't leave. You know, that was the idea of uh, the sister writing the letter, like if anything happened to her. And it really all spiraled from there. Um, because to me, I think the story is all about character, like front and center character is just everything. So I'll have my opening scenario, um, you know, which I described the sister, the funeral, getting the letter. But after that, it is all about who is this character and how does she respond? You know, what would you do if you were in that scenario? What would you do if this happened to you? And so it's almost like, what if? what if, what if, and building on that. Um, and as I'm writing the book, the first draft is usually a terrifying mess because I'm getting to know the character and getting to know like what she would do. And, you know, her choices are not my choices, but, um, you know, they're, they're have to feel real and grounded in her world. And so, um, you know, it, it's kind of like a mix of things where the idea I think comes out of a mix, sometimes a real life story, sometimes something I've read, maybe some amalgamation of those two things, but then the character takes on a life of their own. When, like you said that, that your first draft is uh, a lot of you discovering the story and, and sometimes at the end of that first draft, it may seem like, like kind of a jumbled mess to, to some people, but in your mind, now you know what the story is and, and you, yes. you have a, a, a firm grasp of it. What what is the what's the revision process like for you? Do do you then um you know can deconstruct the book and start rebuilding it? Um or what is that when 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 you've maybe set it aside for a couple of days to give your brain a breather and then come back to it? What what is your goal with that first draft as you start revisions? Yeah. So the first draft, right for me, writing a first draft is the most brutal part of the process. It's, you know, every day you're facing a blank page and it is painful and difficult and, you know, but there's no way through it except to do it. Like you just, you have to put those words down. I love revision. So after I've, you know, managed to get that first draft out, setting it aside for a little bit, coming back to it is wonderful because even though I look at it like you are a terrifying mess and you know unpublishable and you know my writer card would be taken away if anybody saw what a mess this draft is <laughs> it is my starting place for the real work I've kind of 
in the first draft, I've sort of channeled thoughts and feelings and ideas. And sometimes I don't know what connects one scene or another. And I used to waste a lot of time sort of trying to come up with something that would connect them. And I stopped doing that and literally would just say, don't know what's next. I'm going to hop ahead in the story. So there's also connective tissue that's missing when I sort of dive in for draft two. But um, because I know sort of what scenes now need to be in the book, it's much easier at that stage to say, oh, here's how I'm going to connect these things. You kind of, at least for me anyway, I see patterns in my work. There are things that I wasn't conscious necessarily that I was writing when I was working on the first draft. I'm really thinking about the characters and, you know, what's going on with the plot and how does this make sense? And sometimes when I, you know, get to the end of the first draft, like I'll start to see like these strange sort of like little themes. Um, you know, in her last breath, um, there was this idea of mythology that kind of came into the book in different small ways. And I I wasn't cognizant of that when I was writing the first draft, but it was just like a, a small thing that kind of unified, I guess, some of the characters or some of their stories. Um, you, you, it's almost like I'm discovering this. So when I go back in to, to do the rewrite, it's like a process of fixing it, making the book make sense, um, and um, and adding all of that connective tissue that it needs. One of the uh, kind of overarching themes of Her Last Breath is this idea of people being not what they seem, um, whether it's the perfect sister who, you know, secretly is living a life that... Uh, that is not so perfect or the the perfect looking husband who is not so perfect um do you do you have themes in mind when you begin a book or um do themes emerge uh you know at the end when you're looking back over it say oh well well this is you know the, this must have been something i was thinking about uh, all along do, do you recognize those themes in the writing i i think i I would say I recognized at the very beginning the idea of the dead sister very much having a kind of a public life, a public facing life and a very different private life and sort of an awareness of how much space there was between those two things. But I certainly wasn't aware of it as a theme and how that played for so many different characters as well. And so, for instance, um, Deirdre, who would be sort of the the main character, she's the narrator that you hear the most from, you know, she's very upfront. She will tell you exactly what she thinks. She's honest to a fault. She blurts things out. But at the same time, you get halfway through the book and you realize like, oh, she's actually been keeping family secret. She's um, very upfront in how she feels about things. But there was a sort of code of silence in her family where you didn't talk about you know, the fact that her father hit her mother, um, you know, this was something that you never revealed to anybody. And so when she's forced to explain that to the police for context about her sister and, um, you know, something that her sister wrote, um, it is excruciating. So there's sort of like everyone in that book, even the most upfront characters, there's a sense of what are they hiding? 
because whatever they're hiding, that sort of shows you where they're vulnerable, like what they want to keep buried. And yeah, that was like an excavation process. I, I was not aware, I guess, of how deep that theme ran through the book. I really thought about it as um, the dead sister and her husband, that they had very different lives on the surface from what they were really living. But I mean, like I say, it was, I think almost every character in the book to some extent, are, they're forced to encounter that divide in their life between you know, who they really are and the face they present to the world, which feels like these days maybe like more and more of like a, a societal theme or concern because with social media, I think now it's pretty, well, not uncommon anyway for people to be presenting themselves with lives that are very, you know, different from what they're actually living. Authenticity is, is, is even though we're more available um, to, you know, to the world uh, on, on a daily basis, authenticity is getting harder and harder to find, isn't it? Yes, exactly. That's the sort of thing where, and it's a relatable human impulse. You know, if you're going to post a photo, you want it to be the best photo. You know, you, you don't want an unflattering photo. You don't want it to be not nice. But then everything gets curated like that. And because we're all on social media together, we're looking at each other's lives like, wow, that person's house is always clean and their kids are well behaved. And, you know, like look at five minutes before the photograph or five minutes afterwards. This is this is not reality. This is like a little itty bitty snippet that's carefully curated, you know, and, and that's she and her very spouse have scale. ever argued. Right, right. Exactly. You know that everybody's smiling all the time. Everybody, you know. And think about when you post photos, like I, I'm guilty of this too. Like not that I've been anywhere in the last year and a half, but right. you know, in the past when I'd go on trips, part of it is just, it's exciting to share the stuff that you see. So I, you know, you see something exciting, you want to post that because you're excited by it. But it ends up being that, oh, there's a, a wealth of photographs from when you're traveling and way less when you're at home, but it makes your life seem much more glamorous and exciting than it actually is because let me repeat 95% of my life is me alone you know in a corner of my living room be at a computer behind a screen so <laughs> it's not glamorous at all while her last breath is full of heady subjects and uh and uh, definitely a, an exploration of of character it's also a lot of fun to read um i had so much fun reading this book hillary I'm recommending oh, it to everyone. So glad. Uh, oh, thank we're gonna you. put links. We're gonna put links on the show notes where people can grab it in Kindle edition or you know actual paper pages that they can turn if they prefer. Uh, and also, it's on an audiobook. Have you have you gotten a chance to listen to any of the audiobook? Yeah, they were actually kind enough when they were had narrowed down the actors, the voice actors. They sent me samples, and I was just dazzled by both of them. They they both did such a spectacular job i haven't listened to the whole thing though i've listened to maybe the first half of the book that way i, I have to admit i don't normally listen to audiobooks but yeah i, I was really dazzled by what they did it's funny because i hear voices in my head and they make oh. them sound real <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna put links in the show notes to where you can grab it in any any edition that you prefer um hillary if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do where can they connect with you online 
Yeah, come find me at HillaryDavidson.com, um, H-I-L-A-R-Y, Davidson.com. And that links to my social media and that as well. So it's kind of my one-stop shopping where you can, um, you know, there, there are stories you can read for free, um, find out about my books, uh, links to podcasts, um, links to social media. So that's sort of you know, just my general website, HillaryDavidson.com. Excellent. We'll put links there. Um, Hillary, this has been so much uh, fun catching up. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. This was wonderful. I enjoy speaking to you so much, Hank. Thank you so much for taking the time. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. The Army of the Dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nano-plague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us, Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that but there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. 
There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there. And I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the comm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the bronze or iron ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some. Rotting boots. Helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts. Beads and charms dangling from bone wrists. Enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be. Where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.